0: Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. <clears throat> okay, here we go. You ready to go, Reggio? Let's do this thing. All right, all set. Levels look good. So let's just, uh, without further ado, right, I'll give you the uh, the three S's and the uh, the countdown. You give me the music. I'll give you a podcast. It's that simple. It's that simple. We've got the uh, we've got the drill down right. After all these years and all these episodes, we should look back. I I, I probably have it written somewhere when you started. Do you remember? Ah, nice. No, it was just, <laughs> just another assignment for you at that time, right? Who knew it was gonna last this long? It's gotta be at least I would say three, if not four years, maybe even longer than that. I mean I've been doing it what you know in, in May of next year it'll be seven years. I I have I did go through several different producers. I was being tossed around. <laughs> but you seem to have some staying power, or are they forgotten? I don't know which one. (laughs) Anyway, um, let's do this thing. You ready to go? All right, here we go. Star Smile Strong. Oh, in the book, 339, episode 339, okay? Star Smile Strong. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. <laughs> we're there right on the shelf. you got good shelf placement, if you will. You hit that prompt, boom, we're right there. Right in the perfect eyesight. Appreciate you listening to this podcast every week, but uh, as I've said many times, lots more responsibility entails when you uh, you decide to be a listener of this podcast. You are expected to get out there and spread the word. So tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podcast, and it should be theirs, too. I mean, my gosh, where have they been? It's been six years already. Going on seven. And if you like what you hear, and they like what they hear, everybody, go to WGNRadio.com. Hit the prompt for this podcast. In addition to the latest podcast that's up there, you just keep... You look to the side there and there's a whole list and you keep scrolling down and scrolling down. There's more and more and more and more and more and more and and you can just drown yourself in these great podcasts. I've done 338 of them, so welcome to episode 339. What I thought I would do today, um, no great secret, right, Um, most people. Record their podcast before they're posted. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, post production, if you will. That's a kind of a, uh, an insider, biz phrase. If you're in the podcast biz, you know what post production is. Uh, any kind of, uh, of presentation, audio or video or even films, there would be uh, post production. You know, you go in and you uh, record your. Your content, and then a well-abled and talented engineer or producer, in this case, good old Reggie, uh, then puts it all together. Like, for instance, when I record this podcast, um, I do record the the opening. You hear me, you know. I do the opening with the music. And it goes right into this, so that's one section. But there's actually Reggie has to actually do some um, some tinkering, some editing with the with the actual uh, files. I record these, and but I record them in two parts. So first, you know, we do the opening with the music live. That's always live, and I there's it's not edited, so I do that live. And then I introduce the the podcast with this is podcast number, blah, blah, blah. It's that whole little spiel. That's all done. I start talking. He plays the music. I talk over it. That's all done live. Sometimes we have to do it one or two times. There's a technical glitch. But my point is that that's that's all done live. And and then I continue right on. There's no edits. I say, welcome to episode, blah, blah, blah. And then we start. And then we go. And then when I finish the content of my podcast then we do hit the stop button and then we record the little ending with the with the little music at the end when i say thank you for listening and that's another podcast and and uh, i ain't here on business i'm only here for fun which is of course an a bruce springsteen line if you didn't know that from rosalita um so that's part two so we actually do two, we, we record two things, the entire first part, and then this the little outro. So we call that an outro. There's an introduction, an intro, and then an outro, which you read at the, at the end of your whatever it may be. And so the outro with uh, that music in the way, that little jumpy, bouncy, jaunty music is uh, a little bite from a song by Elton John called The Captain and the Kid which was a, I guess a sequel to some extent to the original Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. So I figured if the podcast is called Captain Podtastic, which is a takeoff on Captain Fantastic, if you didn't get that by now, then I might as well have a little subtle homage to Captain Fantastic and its sequel. And so, uh, That little music there is the piano solo in the song, The Captain and the Kid, which uh, was a sequel to Captain Fantastic album, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. The Captain and the Kid came out in 2006. The original Captain Fantastic album came out in 1975. And about 30 years later, they, they did a sequel. But anyway, so then that little part there, is then edited on to when I say you know, when I finish the talking part of the podcast, and then the music starts, and I, I give the a little outro. So there is some editing that actually goes on in that. We don't do the whole thing live. So there's a there's a little work that goes goes on in here, no question about that. But but um, I thought today would be interesting to talk about. Um, in fact, I just gave you a little history lesson there about. The genesis of this podcast, in terms of its uh, you know title now once again, if you listen all the time, you know i I don't talk about Elton John all the time um the captain Podtastic um is as I said, a reference you know as i is as I, since i I used the name Elton Jim, of which I did gain some notoriety on the radio was Elton Jim, so I figured when I started a podcast I would just continue using that name more people knew that name as elton of elton jim than they did in my real name jim toronto so i just figured if i'm going to use elton jim then i should have a a subtle elton john reference to the name of the podcast even though it's not about elton john but i thought fantastic podtastic you know everything with pod at that time when we started this podcasts were relatively new not Not completely new, but certainly they weren't like they are now, where it's a major medium. Like I said, we've been doing this thing for almost seven years now. But, um, so yeah, so there's subtle, uh, little homages and tributes to, uh, to Elton, even though it's not about Elton every week. There's some podcasts that, you know, that talk about specific topics all the time, uh, but I don't do that, but I do every so often because I like to talk about things that happen to me. And certainly in my life, Elton John and his music have been uh, played a uh, a pretty integral role. Intrig- inter- integral role, am I saying that right? Integral, right, integral. Some people say intregal or it's integral. I think it's integral. Yes, that's the way it's spelled. But uh, so yeah, so every so often I will talk about Elton John. If it if it uh, is worthy, because as I said, I like to talk about things that go on that I, either I observe or things that go on in my life, and and certainly over the last five or six years, there's been several interesting, at least in my view, interesting uh, things that have happened concerning Elton John, either his music or or other kind of events. Or he's dedicated a song to me at a concert, which is still an amazing highlight that happened on October nineteenth, twenty eighteen, at Madison Square Garden, and actually happened again, not solely to me. I was in a list of people's names that he dedicated a song to, but that was on um, you know July fourth uh, uh, at uh, at Watford of 2022 so that was very cool too but uh and he's given me some shout outs for all the different concerts all the numbers I've gone to when I bring a sign and show it to him when I'm up near the front of the stage but uh, today I did want to talk about Elton John because there's some really cool thing happening that is historic that is uh that is something that you can share in if you're a an Elton John fan or maybe just a casual music fan there is something somewhat nostalgic and certainly historic. To some extent, for an Elton John fan, it certainly is, and in my life, it's certainly a big deal. Uh, if you've been listening to this podcast with any regularity, you know that uh, you know I've been an Elton John fan for close to fifty years now, since I was a little kid and uh, very young, and I have gone to now uh, two hundred and eight Elton concerts. First one in nineteen seventy six at the Chicago Stadium, which is not even there anymore. And as I speak to you, as I record, and this was the whole idea, I record this beforehand. That's why I got into the whole little background is how we record and we do post-production. So I don't do this live. We record these. So I haven't, I haven't seen what I'm going to talk about yet, but I thought I should give you a little, I would give you, a, this might be a two-parter, if you will. So this episode 339 will be part 1 and then next week's will be part 2 of this discussion. But basically I thought it would be interesting to give a little historical background and uh, and share with you some of my pre concert expectations and then let you know about after I've attended these this event. What happened and 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 was did my prediction come true, or did my expectations come true was it was it all that I expected? was it more was it less so I thought that might be fun so if you don 't know what i 'm talking about um, on um, August not august on October no <laughs> what month is this <laughs> on November seventeenth hasn 't this wow this year has gone this last several months have gone by very quickly, I don't know about if it's, it has for you, but ever since August has come, how did it get to be November already? And we're almost done with November now, right? My gosh, man, that last last three or four months of the year, just they really just do seem to fly. Um, I got mixed up because, and I'll explain it later, but on November 17th, 19th, and 20th, now in theory, when, when this posts, this podcast will post, on November 21st. So in theory I will have already attended these shows. But I am recording the this before I have attended the show. So um we are recording it. We, we few podcasts do these live. Some do. But most podcasts are recorded beforehand. And so I am recording this one before I have seen these shows, and I thought it would be a nice idea to, as I said, give a little background on this event um, that I'm going to that is Elton John related, and then um, follow it up with a podcast then after I've returned and let you know how it was. So on November 17th and 19th and 20th in Los Angeles, Did I I say November? I hope I said November again. (laughs) November 17th, 19th, and 20th. um, At Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, Elton John will be performing three shows of his Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour. Now, these are historic to some extent in that they are a nostalgic return Although he has played Dodger Stadium since, but in 1975, and if you've seen the film Rocket Man, the Elton John biopic, you will have seen this concert, uh, you know, a brief portion of it uh, recreated, and it was one of the the movie's highlights. Um, but it doesn't go into a lot of the detail and the historic aspects of it. Which I'd like to sort of fill in those blanks. That the, the movie was very good. Don't get me wrong. I liked the the Rocket Man film. I thought it was it was it was beautifully made. It was cleverly written. It was very well acted by by almost everybody in the film. Gave an excellent excellent performance. Uh, obviously the mu- the music was great. You know, Taron Edger- Edgerton who won the Golden Globe, um, playing Elton was was excellent. But uh, everybody the supporting characters, uh, the actors who played Elton as a young child um, and uh, Bryce Dallas, who played his mother, uh, every, everybody was just excellent. I thought it was very well acted, very well produced, very well directed, very well written. It looked good. It had a nice pacing. It was exciting and obviously uh, you know visually it was uh, it was very impressive with all uh, with the costumes and recreating of the of the different eras dating back to the sixties and even fifties um of elton 's life so I thought it was very well done but as many people may have said, and I think I may have too uh when it came out in twenty nineteen is that uh it was not historically correct it was it was billed as kind of an elevated Reality and a, a fantasy, kind of film. So while many of the uh, segments and 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 events took place, they didn't take place exactly how they were perfor- uh, presented, or even exactly when they were presented. They played they played pretty fast and loose not only with facts, but with the timeline of things and the and for someone like me, it was a little frustrating because I know elton 's story of his career and his life so much, so well that you know I knew the facts i kn- I, I knew the way the things happened and to show and to see how they were being presented either out of out of the timeline or or with completely different people involved or or different aspects going on. It was a little frustrating to see that because I knew what the truth was. And I also knew that a lot of people watching this would think it was true. And so it was a little frustrating from that standpoint. So being a a diehard fan, uh, I enjoyed it as a, as an entertainment piece. No question about that. Um, But then as a diehard fan, I was also, it was also at times a little difficult and frustrating because I, I, I knew the real stories and the real timelines of things. And, uh, and a lot of that was not true. And the idea, and I guess the, the, the idea of that, or the, the reason given was that this story, if you remember the film, if you saw it was, was sort of like Elton's retelling of his, of his story while he was in rehab. And, you know, when we all tell stories, we forget facts. And we get timelines mixed up and we don't get everything the way that it is perfectly. And so that be, they wanted the film to be bigger than life and have, like I said, like you ever saw the film Moulin Rouge, which was based on historical things, you know, Paris with Toulouse-Lautrec and all this. But it was it was, you know, an elevated fiction. And that was sort of the way they, they looked at this film. So the film was big and and exciting, and uh, like I said, you know, a lot of visuals, and the music was great, and um, fast-paced, and things like that. Um, and so it would be easy to get caught up into it and think that you are seeing a strict historical document, but it was not a documentary. And so, uh, but as far as an entertainment piece, I thought it was excellent. But um, one of the, the most prominent scenes that in the movie that looked great was, and thankfully that they did recreate this historic concert at Dodger Stadium um, in 1975. And it was historic. There were two shows, actually, on October 25th and 26th. And these shows were historic at the time. It's, it's really difficult, 50 years later almost, to try to explain in 1975, how popular Elton John was. People say to me, well, you know, why do you why, why Elton John? Why is he your, your big idol and everything? Well, part of it is I think, you know, and I think time has, has proven this. The man is extremely, ridiculously talented. There's no question about that. And look at his staying power. And he's had a number one song now when he's 75 years old. That's, I don't even think Frank Sinatra did that. And um, Elvis didn't live that long and the Beatles didn't last that long but uh so it's amazing when you look at how big his fame was, because you know we're looking at this in in through uh, you know our, our the prism of today. but in 1975, I know it might be hard to even fathom this, but in 1975, rock and roll. Even though it had been around since the mid 50s, it had been around for 20 years, even though it went through Elvis and then it went through the Beatles, uh, you know, in, the, in 1964, it was still viewed as kind of a fringe musical genre. It, it turned out, even at that time, to certainly be more than a fad. I mean, in the fifties, nobody expected rock and roll to last more than a year. And even when the Beatles hit in nineteen sixty-four, if you look at some early uh, interviews with them, you know Ringo and and Paul and the rest of them, they all say, "We hope this, we hope this, this amazing fame and this amazing popularity can last at least a year." And Ringo makes a joke about, uh, you know, hopefully opening up a beauty salon or something, you know, with the with the money he makes. So at the time rock and roll was still an infant even at 20 because the established entertainment of the day and those entertainers as i said before like frank sinatra and dean martin and and all that they were while they were older they were in their 50s by that time and maybe even late 50s early 60s they were still very popular in the mainstream entertainment world. Rock and roll was, had, was certainly popular with young people, but it hadn't become a total mainstream kind of musical genre. When you watched television, there was not a lot of rock stars on. There were some, and there were some shows that would show rock music. You know, it was called In Concert and, and Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. So music was on network television. Rock and roll was on network television. But it was mostly once a week, and those shows that I'm talking about that were on every week that featured rock music were on Saturday nights at 10.30 or 11.30 or 12.30 at night. It was not considered prime time. Every so often, someone on the pop charts of the moment would be on a variety show like Carol Burnett or Sonny and Cher or the, the the various shows, and that was also in 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 due in large part to Ed Sullivan, who was kind of a square ball, an older guy and kind of a square ball, but very keen about entertainment. It was on the Ed Sullivan show, which was a long running variety show that just featured all different kinds of musical. And, and acts and comedians and dancers and, and actors and music of the day. And, and, and Ed Sullivan was smart enough to know that it wasn't just the, the, at that time, the generation that was 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 that you should play to, but also the emerging generation of teenagers and people in their early twenties. And that's who rock and roll. Appeal to, and so even though it probably wasn't Ed Sullivan's cup of tea personally as an entertainment choice, he was a performer. He was a television performer who who relied on ratings, and he was keen enough to realize that uh, young people were having a much bigger influence on the culture than they ever did before. There was a, for, you know, for throughout most history, children were to be seen and not heard. This was an adult's world and children were were there, uh, you know, as a necessary evil, if you will, <laughs> from some, uh, you know, nocturnal um, <laughs> events that were happening between mother and father. Um, but it, you know, and, and kids were, were expected to just sort of be in the background until they were adults, until they can get out and get a job and help support the family. That's, that's the way kids were treated for, for a great period of our history. It's only in the last 50, 60 years where children and, you know, and they th- you know, they well now maybe 70 years. Um, but you know, that, that youth. And what youth cared about played a p- prominent role. It was a it was a definitely an adult-driven culture and society until the mid fifties. And so, uh, and Ed Sullivan deserves as much of a square as he may have looked like. He deserves a huge, huge amount of credit for 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 bringing on the youth revolution. His show was so popular when, even though Elvis Presley had been on other variety shows, it wasn't until he was on the Ed Sullivan show with the Ed Sullivan show's uh, substantial viewers where Elvis literally became an overnight sensation. And when Ed Sullivan saw the popularity that Elvis brought, he brought Elvis back several times, but then he also started to bring on other rock and roll acts who then were following Elvis's lead. And suddenly we had this burgeoning uh, rock and roll music movement that was very popular with young people who were out there buying records. Whether they had the money themselves or their parents gave it to them, it didn't matter. They... they the the way that a, a a generation exerts its power culturally is through its spending power. I mean that's at least in our society. And kids were buying rock and roll records, and 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 that is what drove the train, and that's how the baby boom generation rose. They weren't just there to be seen and not heard. They were they were a generation that was going to be heard definitely and seen and 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 influence the culture as much as some of the older generation didn't want it to be influenced especially in the 60s but Ed Sullivan deserves a lot of credit i brought Elvis on in, in 1957 and then um the Beatles come about in 1964 and and literally changed the world. Elvis sort Elvis don't get me wrong, Elvis had an amazing career. But Elvis, you know, don't forget, Elvis was around for a couple 3 years and then he was drafted and he was gone for about 2 or 3 years. And when he came back, uh, you know, the music had changed. He was gone. He returned and and then made these really kind of cheesy uh movies. And while he was still popular, he wasn't the sensation, the cultural sensation that he was a few years before, because in his absence, other people had tried to copy him or fill the void when he was gone. And so while he still certainly was very popular, don't get me wrong, but he wasn't new anymore. And that's what set the stage for the Beatles, The Beatles looked different. They sounded different musically. They, they talked different. They were from Liverpool. Um, It was, it was a mystique about the Beatles. But once again, it was the Ed Sullivan show that brought the Beatles to America. Now the Beatles had been on other television shows, but they didn't have the power and the ratings and the viewership that the Ed Sullivan show did on Sunday nights on CBS. So when the Beatles came on, the Ed Sullivan show on on February 9th, 1964, the world and the culture changed forever. You can you can point that date and that time as when did our culture change. And suddenly the Beatles were so popular that and the young people were at that time now they were they you know now the baby boom generation was coming of age and there was a lot of kids because when the war ended a lot of parents were making up for lost time if you know what i mean and so you had the, the huge that's why the term baby boomer comes about there was a boom of babies when all the soldiers came back <laughs> there was a lot of uh a lot of a lot of uh stuff going on if you know what i mean and when those kids in by the mid-60s those kids that were born in the mid-40s late to mid-40s right after the war they were coming of age in 1964 they were teenagers and and you know early teens and younger teens and and the beatles came on and struck a chord and everything changed, and rock and roll became a prominent. And once again, Ed Sullivan was huge. In in, in once again, very smart, very keen to say, "Hey, th- this." And and so he, Ed Sullivan show, had many of of the of the rock stars of the late sixties and early seventies on his show. As as square as Ed was, he wasn't stupid, and he might not have been a fan of these of this music, but he knew that there were fans out there. And that's when the baby boomer, baby boomer uh, generation exerted its, its buying power and its cultural power with the Beatles. And so as we sit now, 50, 60, 70 years later, we look at, at pop music, at rock music, at entertainment, as, at pop culture as a, a major hub of our overall culture, but it wasn't always like that. And as popular as the Beatles were, and as popular as they, as they made rock and roll music, people like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and, and all those people were still around, even though they were in their mid late fifties, early sixties, mid sixties, they were still around and they still demanded power and they were still viewed as the mainstream entertainment. So as big as rock and roll was, and it was making a ton of money, it was still viewed as this youth culture music. It wasn't considered the music of the culture. It was still viewed as kind of a a niche. And it really wasn't until the early to mid-'80s with MTV where rock and roll established itself as the music for the next 10 or 15 years until rap and hip-hop took over. So rock had been around from 1955, but it had gone through its ups and downs, and but it needed to wait until the baby boomer generation, who with the Beatles... Established rock as a major cultural phenomenon. It wasn't until the baby boomers, another 15 years after the Beatles, another 15, 16, 17 years, were now the, those teenagers were now in the workplace in positions of power or access in business where their that where their likes were beginning to influence what was on television. MTV music television showed how important music was to the baby boomer generation. So much so that they started a channel that that was just about music and nothing else. And then along came the video aspect which we all appeal to. We are we are visual animals. And that was a match made in heaven. And I spoke about that, you know, a while ago when MTV celebrated its, about a year ago when MTV celebrated its 40th anniversary. But the fact is that rock and roll in the 70s was still viewed, even though it was bringing in millions and making, you know, making millionaires of, of, of rock stars all over the place, in the mainstream of our culture rock was still viewed as a niche and it may sound contradictory but that's the way it was because the, the that generation of Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin they still had their power in terms of their only their style power, star power but they also had their numbers too in terms of a generation they were still in control in the 70s, they were still in the positions of authority. Like I said, it wasn't until another 10 years when the baby boomers then were all of a sudden running TV stations and running the radio stations. They weren't just working there, they were making the decisions. And that's when rock and roll became established as a major entity in our culture. You know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame wasn't devised until 1986, which goes to show you why. And by who? By Jan Wenner, among other people. But Jan Wenner and Ahmed arrogant who was the head of Atlantic Records. But, you know, Rolling Stone's publisher, Jan Wenner, is, is always, you know, uh, associated with the, the founding of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, okay. Because by 1983, Jan Wenner was now in his 40s, and and Rolling Stone had been established for 20 some years, and and Jan Wenner was a multimillionaire, and 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 he was in a position of power, and 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 and, and a millionaire, and and and, a, and he was established. And once again, the lovers of rock and roll, the generation that grew up on rock and roll, in 1986 then wanted to full, you know, fully elevate rock music by making a Hall of Fame to show how important it was. So it wasn't really until the 80s when rock and roll established itself as the defining and dominant music of the culture, even though rock had been around from the 50s. So in 1975, it's hard today because, as I said before, we look through this prism of, well, rock and roll has always been around and pop music, and that's always been. Well, it hasn't always been, and it hasn't always been as dominant. If you're a young kid today, you hear the names of Elton John and Bruce Springsteen and Paul McCartney, but you really might not fully understand the breadth of their histories and what the world was like at the time when they came up from Bruce Springsteen's standpoint and I think I talked about this before um you know Bruce Springsteen was the first uh rock star to be on both the cover of Time and Newsweek the same week now you say well what's the big deal about that you know i mean you know Taylor Swift is on a million you know Michael Jackson R- right but not in 1974 1975 Not then, to have a rock star on the cover of Time Magazine, which was the the mainstream news magazine of the country, if not the world, to have a rock star was a huge, huge deal. Because rock was not the establishment music. That was not the music of the demographic who was buying Time magazine, but you could see that even in 75 there were some people with some influence who were rising up the ladder for power where they could get a Bruce Springsteen on the cover. And in 1975, there was no rock star, pop star bigger than Elton John just wasn't he was every he dominated the pop charts he his his concerts were selling out in seconds he was breaking the the attendance records and the ticket sales uh, sales records of Elvis Presley and the Beatles his music was on the radio constantly I've told this story before. There were some times where I remember in 75, I could go down the AM dial on my station, hit all the pop stations. And, and, and one time I remember doing this specifically, but it wasn't just one time, but I can remember where I was. I kept hitting the buttons. Remember those buttons that were on your, your car radios? And every song, there was maybe four or five different pop stations, and I hit every station, and there was an Elton John song playing on all five stations at the same time. He, the, there's a figure, I don't know how accurate it is, but it is constantly quoted. It was quoted at the time, but it's still quoted today, 50 years ago, so I will quote it as well. That at, in 1975, Elton John was responsible for 3% of all the records that were sold in the world. Now, you say, well, 3% isn't a lot, Jim. For one artist in the entire world to have 3% of all the records sold, that's a huge deal. In 1975, the year started with his song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, being number one. It was followed up a few months later with another number one song, philadelphia freedom philadelphia freedom was followed up with a new album called captain fantastic and the brown dirt cowboy which became the first album in billboard chart history to enter the charts at number one once again no one had ever done this before not elvis not frank sinatra not the beatles Not David Cassidy. (laughs) No. No one, not Bob Dylan, nobody had ever released an album. And in the first week, not Stevie Wonder, up to that point in 1975, May of 1975, nobody had ever released an album that went to number one its first week. It entered the charts at number one. No one had ever done that, but Elton John did. And you know who the second person was? Who put an album out and entered the charts at number one? Elton John. In 1975, in November. With Rock of the Westies. <laughs> two number one, two albums put out in the same year both entered the charts at number one. Nobody had ever done it before in the history of the charts. Elton John is the first and second person to ever have done it. So in addition to this amazing chart domination, which then obviously was reflected on the radio and uh, in magazines, Elton John also was on the cover of time magazine, which was a huge deal. It's a great cover. It's a classic illustration of Elton. And the title is called rocks. Captain fantastic. It's a great cover. It's a beautiful illustration. If you go you can go online and just put time magazine, 1975, Elton John, you'll see it. Uh, and I remember going to the store and buying it and just seeing it going, wow, this is so cool. I'm so glad I'm an Elton John fan. <laughs> but Elton John was so huge. Oh, and I should say, and then he follows it up uh, with Philadelphia Freedom. And then Someone Saved My Life Tonight was not a number one song, uh, but it certainly was a top five song. And then Someone Saved My Life Tonight was then followed up by another number one song, Island Girl, which was number one for three weeks in a row to end the year. So he started the year with a number one song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which was the cover of the Beatles song. And then he ended the year with another number one song, Island Girl, at the end of the year. And in between, he had two number one albums that entered the charts at number one. And he had huge tours, and he was all over the place. Oh, and I shall also mention he was also the star of a movie called Tommy, in which he was the Pinball Wizard, and his song version of the Who song is what drove the soundtrack to be the number one song. Oh, and I should mention, too, that he was on another number one song with Neil Sadaka called Bad Blood. So (laughs) Elton John was everywhere. in. Oh, I should also mention that in 1975, um, he had his star on the Walk of Fame dedicated to him when he wasn't even 30 yet, okay? <laughs> and they actually proclaimed the whole week when he was in L.A. for these concerts. I'm telling you about a Dodger Stadium in October of 75. They, they, called, they, they proclaimed it Elton John Week in Los Angeles, and that's when he got his Walk of Fame star. And I may be forgetting some other things too, but needless to say, 1975 was an amazing, amazing time in Elton John's career, in, in, in anyone's career, He dominated the pop rock world. No questions asked. And you really can't even get a sense of it because as I said, while popular as he was in the rock world, even the mainstream had to finally, you know, (laughs) acknowledge that even here in the United States. But, And so that's why, you know, Elton was on a share special, and you can see some great performances of his on that in 1975. But if Elton, and so all this was done, this amazing chart dominance, he was at a creative peak, popularity peak, everything, selling out concerts at, at record paces, dominating the charts, always on the radio, television, magazine covers, you name it. Every, every benchmark of fame, he not only had a checklist, but it was eighty checklists for each one. And why I say that you can't even you can't truly explain or relate to how famous he was. He was bigger than any music person you may think of now. He's bigger than Beyonce or Taylor Swift. Or whoever would be the person of, of, of the day right now. He just was. They they did not dominate the, the 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 entertainment world like he did. And he did this all without the help of the mainstream media. As I said, while he was on the cover of Time magazine, that was uh, you know, that wasn't par for the course. That was a huge anomaly that they that Time magazine had to acknowledge. Like, well, we know it's this niche music, but you can't deny the, the 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 accomplishments that this guy's having right now. So we'll have to put him on the cover. We'd like to put you know Richard Nixon or Gerald Ford on the cover, but we have to just acknowledge what this guy's doing. And my point is. He was doing this without the mainstream media. When you even look at how huge Michael Jackson was, and I understand now that there is a huge generation that's, you know, that's in control right now that doesn't even really understand how huge Michael Jackson was in the early eighties because of MTV and Thriller. But if Elton John had had MTV. And the power of MTV and the power of visual to have have his music being shown and played on a 24-hour basis like Michael Jackson did or Prince did or Bruce Springsteen did in the 80s. If he had that added boost, that added power of the media, with the kind of fame that he had and in the mid 70s it would have been off the, it, it was already off the charts in 1975 and he did it without MTV and without the mainstream media he still was able to crack the mainstream media while rock and roll was still considered young people's music and just a niche and it's still going to fade away It did not fade away, obviously. It is now, sadly. But 50 years later, he has not faded away. So the the historic aspect and the pinnacle of his fame happens, as I said, 1975 starts out with, you know, and, and I should mention, too, that not only was Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds the number one song, but his greatest hits album came out in late 1974, and was still high in the charts, if not even number one in 1975. <laughs> he was unbelievable. He, he every measure of fame and power and and success and popularity Elton John had achieved and more in 1975. And I wish that the movie Rocket Man had really shown that they 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 because they didn't they didn't uh, do things in. In the in a timeline order, they didn't really show the pure dominance that Elton had. There was some there were scenes that kind of hinted at it, but they weren't as prominent as I wish they were. Because historically, 1975 was unlike any other pop star. I mean, like you, I mean, certainly once again, you know, it, it was on an Elvis and Beatles level and. People you know, and that and people might say, "Well, you're you're a big fan of Elton John, so that's why you say that, and you're exaggerating it." I'm not exaggerating it. Go and 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 do the research yourself if you don't believe me, because sadly, Elton doesn't get that same kind of historical um, credit as Elvis and the Beatles get. Elton was not the choice, you know. Elvis came out of nowhere, and the Beatles came out of nowhere. When the Beatles broke up in 1970, ironically, Elton's first album came out the month that the Beatles broke up in 1970, his, 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 well, his second album, but the, the album with, El, with Your Song, which really established him, came out in April of 1970 when the Beatles broke up. So Elton's kind of a peer of the Beatles, which you wouldn't think of, but no one saw Elton coming. People, I mean, when he when he did his when he came to the United States and he, he played three or four shows at this uh, L.A. club, which was a very uh, prominent rock club at the time, the Troubadour. Small place though, maybe held two hundred and fifty people. Um, he was a complete unknown, except for maybe getting some airplay with your song. But no one knew what to expect, and he literally became an overnight sensation when Robert Hilburn of the LA Times wrote a glowing article that said, don't worry, pop fans, we're all lamenting the end of the Beatles, but uh, this was in August, so this was about three or four or five months after, but we've got a, a new rock star on the horizon. That was basically the thrust after he played his first night. And he really his career just began to take off after that. His life and his career were never the same after that. But my point is that, you know, Elton wasn't the choice of the rock elite, of the rock press. First of all, you know, he didn't play the guitar. And even though Elvis didn't really play the guitar, uh, you know, he he he, he used to have one on stage with him, but he, he didn't really play it. You know, but then rock had been established with the Beatles as a guitar sound. In the '50s, ironically, the piano was a key rock sound with Jerry Lee Lewis and Fat's Domino and Little Richard. But the Beatles made the guitar, the cool the electric guitar, the cool rock instrument. So the rock press with the Beatles breaking up. You know, they had Elvis in the fifties, and we had the Beatles in the 60s, and now rock was gaining prominence. Still wasn't a mainstream music, but it was gaining credibility and gaining promise, great in part because of the influence of the Beatles. And even older people had to acknowledge the Beatles' talent, and Frank Sinatra even, you know, sang Beatles songs. So there was an acknowledgement because of the Beatles. Of rock. But the rock establishment, the Rolling Stone magazines and the rock press, they were looking, they wanted now to anoint the next generational pop star of the 70s. There was Elvis, there were the Beatles, and now there was enough of a rock press, even though it was still a niche that they wanted to anoint the next rock star, the next phenomenon, the one that would define the seventies. Because now once again, these former teenagers when they were in the mid sixties were now in their mid twenties and now they were out, you know, in the workforce and writing for newspapers and stuff and, and trying to, as I said, you know, not only start their own careers, but you know, start other magazines. There were more rock music magazines than just Rolling Stone. So the the whole area of rock journalism was actually beginning to take shape and gain its own power within a niche, but still out there and gaining popularity. And so there was a snob, a snob kind of a snobbish kind of um, feeling going on that they wanted to anoint the next rock star. So the next rock star or act, whether it was a, a solo person or band, you know, in, in in the in the rock press's mind, had to be guitar driven. You know, at that time, it had to you know had to be rebellious, but also dangerous, and 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 even you know with with a, with a sexual attitude because the Beatles had brought that. You know, Elvis and the Beatles had certainly brought that into, and that was beginning to grow. You had uh, you know. Uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, you know, Robert Plant never wore a shirt, you know, in Mick Jagger. There was this androgynous kind of uh sex appeal. You know, the 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 prototype of a rock star going into the into the 70s was, uh you know, heroin chic, if you will. You know, they were they weighed one hundred and twenty five, just like Mick Jagger is now. Right. You know, so that's why David Bowie was a was a contender. You know, a David Bowie type. And it probably, you know, at that time still was going to be British because the British invasion, the British influence was so was so strong. But, you know, they were looking for a guitar-driven, uh, you know, bigger-than-life personality that had sex appeal, that maybe even had some androgyny going on. But that's who the rock press wanted to anoint they wanted someone like a david bowie or a lou reed or someone like that in the early 70s to take the mantle or you know led zeppelin you know guitar based image sex appeal rebellious dangerous because those were the aspects that while they were somewhat tamed with elvis and the beatles they still they still m- met those criteria for the time we look at the beatles now and they look harmless we look at elvis it looks harmless but at the time elvis was considered dangerous he was scary people thought he was going to ruin the american culture same thing with the beatles so that's what rock wanted to rock wanted to make sure that the next the ne- the next pop star of the 70s was also going to be in that vein that that the older generation could not like him or her. They had to be afraid of of the next rock star because that's what rock and roll was all about. Rock and roll was a generational music and a rebellious music. And so the next pop star, the great pop star to fall in the uh, his you know in the in the line of succession of Elvis in the fifties and the Beatles in the sixties, had to encompass at least in the rock journalist mind, there were some criteria they had to have. Guitar, you know, skinny, lithe body, androgynous, sexy, dangerous, you know, probably took drugs, was cool, you know, back in that time. Definitely guitar driven sound, no question about that. And here comes Elton John. Short, kind of pudgy, balding, playing the piano and playing songs that were so melodic, even though they were rock-based, he has such a sense of, of natural melody that as popular as he was with kids, his songs were so melodic that even older people had to take an ear and go, I don't know who this guy is. But that's not a bad song. Frank Sinatra sang an Elton John song. So Elton, but this is not what the rock press wanted. They wanted a rebel. They wanted someone that that the, the older generation of parents would hate. They wanted a guitar hero. They did not want some pudgy, balding guy that wore glasses playing the piano to be the next great pop star of the decade, of the next decade to succeed the Beatles. They did not want that. And that was, so that's, what's even more impressive about Elton's rise is that he was actually fighting within his own business, within the press, within his own niche business. He was fighting against them. The press did not anoint Elton John. The public did. They loved his music. They loved his performing. They loved his image. They didn't care about all those checklists that the rock press was worried about. And to some extent, because his fame grew so big, the rock press attacked Elton. So he did not even have the luxury of being boosted up by the rock press that boosted up the Beatles and Dylan as being culturally important and popular. He was fighting within the rock world and the pop world, and the only thing that kept him from from being caught, tossed away was you couldn't deny the popularity. And in 1975, you could not deny, I don't care who you were, you could not defy or defy or or. You could not, I don't know what the word is, deny, I'm sorry, the popularity and dominance of Elton John in 1975 especially. And so as further proof of this, now what? Stadium shows, stadiums and outdoor stadiums with 70,000 people, 100,000 people, right? Festivals, big stadiums, big, you know, Just big grounds where there's hundreds of thousands of people, lollapalooza. That's that we don't even think twice about that anymore. But in 1975, that was not the case. Rock was certainly selling out 20,000 cedars, like Madison Square Garden. There's no question about that. Rock and roll had its power. There's no question. But it wasn't selling out baseball stadiums and football stadiums yet like the Beatles did in 1966 the Beatles basically the last tour was of the United States and they were so big they were playing baseball stadiums and so Elton's popularity was so big in 1975 that he was able to do what the Beatles did few rock stars could ever even have thought of it. Now it's commonplace. But in 1975, it was not commonplace. So much so that when the two shows on October 25th and October 26th at Dodger Stadium not only sold out two shows at 55,000 people apiece, meaning 110,000 people in two nights, unheard of at the time in 1970s, Elton was the first rock act since the Beatles in 1966 to play Dodger Stadium because he was the only act who could they could even, in theory, think could sell that out. And he sold it out for two shows. So on the height of these two number one albums and a number one song at the time, Island Girl and Captain Fantastic and Rock of the Westies, in the midst of all this, in this, in this earlier year with Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, his greatest hits album, Philadelphia Freedom, the Tommy movie. Now, those two albums entering the charts number one and another number one with Island Girl. Now, he's got a tour and two sold out shows at Dodger Stadium where no one has played since the Beatles. I would think that even as I, I lay that out to you, you have to understand or at least begin to understand the height of that fame, and so these shows were huge, but here's my point too if those were hap- if 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 events on that scale were happening today, we would know about that a year in advance. And it would be on some streaming service, and it would be, you know, you could go live and see it, you know, online, and there would be stories about it, and it would be the headlines on the news, regular legitimate news, and on cable television, would be everywhere. You know, if it was, if Taylor Swift, you know, when Taylor Swift has her tour next year, believe me, you're going to see the coverage of that in the mainstream media all over the place you're going to hear it on on your regular news in between you know the, the the stock prices and and the sad latest murder but in 1975 you did not see that on the news rock did rock concerts were not talked about on the news in 1975 on a regular basis it didn't happen i know that's hard to understand if you're younger but it, that's just the way things were. It was still a niche fringe music. The mainstream news and the main street editors were still older and they didn't think it was that important. So much so that here I was, a huge Elton John fan, member of the Elton John fan club. I mean, by 1975, oh my God, my room was plastered with Elton John pictures all over my ceiling and walls and, and I had every album and I had every magazine and, and I knew every word to every song and you name it. I didn't know that Elton was playing concerts at at Dodger Stadium. Not, I certainly didn't know the exact dates. It wasn't on the news. It wasn't in the newspaper the next day. There may have been a story about it in Rolling Stone a a couple of weeks later. There may have been some stories in Los Angeles, but it wasn't a national story. It wasn't a global story like it would be now. Right now, his tour, his final show at, at Dodger Stadium that I'm talking about, on November 20th, is going to be streamed live on Disney+. Plus. And there's already been, you know, promotion for this and, and everybody talking about it. There's going to be a red carpet. There's a huge deal. But in 1975, it may have been a huge deal on the West Coast. It may have been a huge deal in L.A. those two days, but it wasn't. It wasn't covered and it wasn't even publicized outside of that area around the country because it was still viewed as, okay, well, there's a rock concert. Big deal. Now, in today's world, it would be a big deal. And these concerts for Elton, even at his age, are a big deal. But if there was the kind of media now with social media and 24-hour cable, if Elton in 1975 had that kind of media organizations and platforms at his disposal you would know about these concerts like you know about the Ed Sullivan show with the Beatles. That's how historic these shows were. There was no buddy bigger in entertainment than Elton John. So much so that at his concert before, and there's photos of this, Cary Grant was backstage. The ultimate symbol of the establishment of the entertainment world came to see Elton. And so those two shows were historic then, and then when he performed them within Elton's own history, he made them historic. They were historic on their face, the fact that he was playing Dodger Stadium Sold out two shows, going to play to 110 people, 110,000 people in over two days. That was historic before he ever p- went on the stage. And then, true to form, the consummate entertainer that he is, when he got on the stage, he then even punctuated the history and, as, and then firmly established these as historic by putting on memorable concerts. The people that were there were blown away. He, gave, he put on three-hour three, three hour shows, which were unheard of at the time in 1975. Most concert acts did an hour, maybe an hour and a half. He did three hours. And, of course, as I said, you've seen in the film, and it was just touched upon, really. But he came out at the beginning of the show not wearing the, the sequin Dodger Dodgers uh, uniform. But first he came out for the first half of the show, because there were two halves, First half, he came out with a, with a glittery jumpsuit and a derby. And then for part two is when he came out with the sequin Dodgers outfit that was made by Bob Mackey, which is shown in the film and now has become so iconic. And I mean, that, that, that was in 1975. Now in 2022, we're seeing everybody wearing that costume. All the time you go to concerts everybody's wearing it. You can buy that concert that that costume online now. It's been around for 50 years, but it's only since that movie where people really saw it. So that's what was good about the Rocket Man movie. I wish they would have done more about how historic that concert was though, with some of these facts that I'm telling you now. Because they truly it truly were historic moments. And so now Almost 50 years later, this farewell tour, when it was originally conceived, was supposed to run from 2018 to 2021. And it was going to end completely, done, finished, final show of his farewell tour, fittingly, at Dodger Stadium. In 2021, around this time of year, November. They had to do that because, you know, now the Dodgers are a good team, so they would have to do it after the World Series. So originally this show, these shows, there was only two, and now they just added another one. So now there's three. They just added one about two months ago or three months ago because of demand. But there were two shows going to be just like the two that initially were, uh, you know, back-to-back on the 19th and 20th. So it was all set up to have the historic kind of nostalgic callbacks. But then, of course, COVID changed all that and and delayed the tour a couple of years. And so now here we are to the point where these are not even the final shows of the whole tour anymore. These will be Elton's final U.S. dates of this tour. But then in the new year, he will be in Australia and New Zealand. And then he will do shows throughout Europe into the, in the spring and into the summer. And now the tour will end, as it's stated right now, unless they add another show or two. But I don't think they will. On July 8th in Stockholm, Sweden. Which doesn't really have any historical uh, you know, significance. Because these shows were delayed from 2021 and they had to push them back then. So that's why those shows are becoming the last shows, not because of any historical significance, but just out of necessary uh, rescheduling because of COVID. So unfortunately, these Dodger Stadium shows, while, he, while these new shows will be historic and they will be a big deal, a bigger deal to the rest of the world than those first shows were, but no less historic, they won't really have the same kind of significance as they would have because they would have been the final shows of his final world tour of his career. And it was fitting, not only because to go back to Dodger Stadium to where he had this triumphant time in 1975, but also, as I said before, he really established his career in 1970 in Los Angeles at the Troubadour Club. So to go back and end his tour for good which it was supposed to be for good the final shows of the entire tour in 2021 at dodger stadium it really did have a nice kind of circle of life and a historic kind of significance those shows will still have a significance they will still be special and still be historic but they won't be the last ones now like they should have been or they would have been but nonetheless they are setting up to be very special. And we've already said that they're going, it's going to be the final show. There's three shows on the 17th, 19th, and 20th. The final show on November 20th will be live streamed on Disney Plus. So if you have Disney Plus, you can watch it live. And they've already said there's going to be special guests, I would assume, given the popularity over the last several years of um, his hit with Dua Lupa called Cold Heart which was a number one song around the world and uh, uh, still on the charts, and now a recent number one on some different kind of platforms and charts that you might look, the song Hold Me Closer with a duet with Britney Spears. So I would not be surprised if both Dua Lupa and Britney Spears show up. I would not be surprised if Billie Jean King, who sang backup vocals during that show at Dodger Stadium, because she's such a fan of and a friend of Elton John, and once again the song Philadelphia Freedom, which in nineteen seventy-five, was written for her tennis team called the Philadelphia Freedoms and was a number one song in nineteen seventy-five. Billie Jean sang backup during that show. I don't know if her microphone was on, but she was on stage with a Dodgers stadium with a Dodgers coat singing background. I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if Billie Jean King shows up. For that concert I wouldn't be surprised if Taryn Edgerton who won the Academy Award playing Elton in Rocket Man shows up maybe he'll sing a song with Elton maybe he'll wear the official Dodger Stadium uh, costume from 1975 he might be able to fit into it. Elton recently had it he he auctioned that that uh, that costume away in 1988, and the Hard Rock Cafe bought it in 1988, and it's been uh, you know showcased at, at several of their locations around the world. But about four or five months ago, Elton was able to give a trade, and he performed at the Hard Rock, one of the Hard Rock uh, in London, and he gave them one of his newer jackets, and they gave him the Dodger Stadium costume. So I wouldn't be surprised if that, costume make some kind of an appearance at this at these concerts i would think they would have to i wouldn't be surprised if Taryn edgerton didn't show up and maybe wearing that costume that would be very cool and i also wouldn't be surprised if if the very least i mean cuz elton can't fit in that costume anymore i mean you know he was he was very although i said he was pudgy but at that time he was very thin in 1975, he had been on cocaine and he had, had lost a lot of weight. So he was actually very thin. And it was sadly, the during that was, was the pinnacle of his career. He was very lonely personally. And in fact, as it is shown in the movie, he did take sleeping pills and jump into his pool a couple of days before those shows, when his family was at his house. That is true. And yet... He survived that and put on these two amazing shows because that's Elton. He is the consummate performer. So it was, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting anecdotes surrounding this, not only from a historic standpoint of his accomplishments, but sadly, it was the best of times for him and it was the worst of times for him personally. So there's that backstory that goes into it too. I wouldn't be surprised because Elton can't fit into that Dodger Stadium costume or that you know dodger baseball but i wouldn't be surprised if gucci which does his his clothes now i i would be i i would have to think that they have designed a dodger stadium uh, you know not dodger stadium a dodger a, a la dodgers uniform within elton's current kind of costumes with the jackets and the and all the the Spangles and all the sequins like he does have. So I wouldn't be surprised if he comes out with some kind of a Dodger uniform themed Gucci outfit, just not like the uniform because I don't think he could, he could wear that anymore. But I might I wouldn't be surprised if he, had, if he has a long jacket or something that has the Dodge, you know, there's a sequin Dodger with the LA insignia on the side or the back or something like that. So I wouldn't be surprised. And if you really want to see something uh, pictures, there's a, a book by the, the noted, uh, rock photographer named Terry O'Neill. So go online and look up Terry O'Neill. And, and there is a book that was out, put out a couple years ago. He had complete access and took some amazing photos of Elton during these concerts backstage, as well as on stage. He had full access and, uh You've seen probably many of those. Just go online. You can see them all. Just put Elton John 1975 Dodger Stadium Terry O'Neill photos, images, and you'll see them. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised, as I said, if they recreate some of those famous photos. The the biggest tragedy that I would not be able, that I do not I cannot forgive his management at the time, John Reed, who was his manager, and you see him portrayed very prominently in the Elton John movie, why they did not film these concerts in their entirety. You knew they were historic. What they did do is they did allow one of the British networks to film the concerts and do a documentary so while we have some footage of Elton's actual performance at these shows we do not have the entire concert from start to, to think it with just the music we have this documentary with with clips now obviously they did film the whole concert but there's rumors that that, that that footage has either been destroyed by a fire, sadly, if that's the case, or it's been lost, or no one knows where it is because it's been 50 years. But while the the film may have been filmed, while the concert may have been filmed in its entirety professionally, it was never released as a full concert from beginning to end, which is another reason why it hasn't gained prominence because that should have been a DVD and a, and a, and a, and a you know, first it should have been a video cassette, It should have been on television in 1975. It should have been, you know, but it was just poorly handled. It, uh, sadly, as I said before, at the time in 1975, even the people that were running rock and roll, they didn't really understand the historic significance that rock would have in our culture. They were living day to day. So yes, there are photos, and yes, there are some some, um, recordings, but not even a recording, not even a bootleg recording, not even an official recording of these L.A. concerts for a live album exist that is unforgivable and a true loss of some historical documentation. It's another reason why these L.A. shows, these Dodger Stadium shows, never took on the historical prominence through these last 50 years they should have because we just didn't have the correct documentation those in charge john reed should have made sure that those concerts were were recorded professionally and filmed professionally at the very least for elton's own archive for his own memories even if you weren't going to use it per, you know as a, as a product but my gosh why wouldn't you have released that as a live album why wasn't that show from top to bottom recorded? Why wasn't that show from top to bottom filmed? To be shown in theaters and later to be shown on on video cassettes and later to become a, a DVD and later to become on a streaming service. Whether whether you didn't think rock and roll was going to have staying power or not, if you were the manager of Elton John, you made sure that this historic moment was documented for either commercial use later or, at the very least, for personal use. For him to look back 50 years later and say, wow, look what I did. John Reed did a lot of great things for Elton John's career in his time with him, and he did a few bad things too. But what I'll tell you is I can never forgive him for not filming from top to bottom Regardless of this documentary, that that doesn't count. That was somebody else's. For your own documentation, for your own archives, so you know you had it and owned it. You're supposed to hire a, your own film crew and film this. Don't worry. Don't 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 uh, you know rely on someone else. You're supposed to record it audio, and record it video on film or on videotape, whatever, for your own. So Elton owned it and could do whatever he wanted with it, whether it was release it or just have it in his archives. Unforgivable sin. As well as, while we're talking about it, the same thing, they did not film John Lennon's appearance with Elton in 1974, which turned out to be John Lennon's last concert appearance. A major historical moment. All we have are some photos We have the audio, thankfully, but some photos. But we don't have any video. We have some very rudimentary, uh, you know, eight millimeter or sixty millimeter that people, you know, bump, you know, shot shakily from the from the audience. And for the the Dodger Stadium show, we have bits and snippets of the actual performance as a part of a documentary. But we don't have the entire performance. That is a sin. We'll have it now for these new shows on Disney+, Plus, so that's something good, but we don't have that historic vintage footage that would have, over the last 50 years, elevated those shows to the historical prominence that they should have had. Now, personally, I've never seen Elton perform in Dodger Stadium. I've been to Dodger Stadium. I saw a, a Cub game there once. But I've never I did. I was too young I, 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 you know in to, to, to 1975 to, to ask my mom if we can get on a plane and go to L.A. <laughs> I don't know, how that would have went over. I never got a chance to see it, never got a chance to hear it. I saw pictures of it. That's all. There's a couple of bootlegs with maybe four or five songs, but not the entire concert. Not even a bootleg. Where were the bootleggers? Where were they even that time? What a shame. These historic concerts, for the most part, went undocumented for audio or visual. So I'm looking forward to see these shows. Now, Elton has played Dodger Stadium since. He played Dodger Stadium in the 90s um, with Eric Clapton. So he has played Dodger Stadium since the 1975 shows. But... Now the historical significance is these will be Elton's final U.S. shows. And and everybody expects Elton because he does have performing in his blood that even though he's saying this is his last, you know, tour, that, you know, he's saying in many cities that he's been going to over the last, you know, year, this is my last show in this city. You know, he has historically, you know, made public comments on things. And changed his mind. In fact, in 1977, he announced he was he was retiring from from performing. So, you know, here he is, 50 years later. But I do believe that, given his age, he will be 76 next summer when this tour ends. His um, personal desire to spend more time with his young children, who are. Right now, uh, you know, in their pre-teens. Um, he's in fairly good, sh- good health, but he's not in great health. He does have some chronic problems. He's diabetic. He had prostate cancer. He had hip surgery. He's got bad knees. Um, he's got arthritis. So, you know, he wants to spend his 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 remaining time close to his family, of which he has not been able to do because of his crazy schedule and life of being Elton John. Now, perhaps after a year or so, you know, he did have some time, unexpected time during COVID with his kids. So that was a nice little unexpected treat. And maybe he will get restless. But even if he does another even if he does perform again, I don't think it's. It, I know it's not going to be one of these giant tours like this. It may be a residency at a at a certain uh, venue in a certain city, and he'll do maybe a couple of weeks of shows there. But he's not. I don't think he's going to, you know, completely change his mind and do another big tour. where He's on planes going from city to city like this anymore. But you never know. But as it stands, he's been pretty much saying goodbye to the fans in a very uh, heartwarming but it seems to be a very definite way which for me then these shows I I don't know how I'm reacting right now I haven't seen these shows yet even though by the time this this um pod podsta- this podcast uh posts the final show will be over this podcast will post on November 21st the last show will be November twentieth, but I won't be able to tell you about it until November twenty eighth because I'm filming. I'm I'm recording these in uh, you know in advance, and then I'll be at those shows. So, I I'm I I've got a friend of mine who 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 we were talking about this who's going to be at those shows, and anybody who's an Elton John any. Elton John, Fanworth, his salt is going to be at these L.A. shows, at least one of them. And he was saying how this was really becoming very emotional for him, and and I haven't felt that yet. Now, maybe when I get there, it will sink in. And I don't know. I mean, will these be the final shows I ever see Elton John perform in? I don't know. I mean, I know that he's going to be in Europe next summer. I I might go to those shows, but right now I, I don't know if I'm going. So as it stands right now, these could be the last shows of Elton John I ever see if he doesn't perform anymore after next year. And going to see Elton John has been a major part of my life since I was 12 years old. And certainly over the last... 15 years where I've been going to a lot more shows and on a regular basis because he's been touring so much and I've actually been able to rack up 208 shows, which is no small feat. And as I've always said, people say, why do you keep going to the same, you go to see him so much. And I say, cause I remember the goosebumps I had when I saw him when I was 12 in 1976. And in nineteen in twenty twenty two, I still get those goosebumps. Now the last time I saw him was in August here in Chicago at Soldier Field. So I don't know. Even I don't know, maybe the first show on the seventeenth, I might not feel it. Maybe even that second show on the nineteenth, but I think on that, that final show it, it might sink in. I don't know. I might be I might be a, a crying, babbling mess. On November 17th, I really don't know what to expect. I do know what to expect though in some I don't know how I'm going to react. I do know what to expect. I expect to see three shows that once again will blow me away that I will completely be enraptured in from the minute he comes out until the minute he leaves. I will be singing every line of every song and I will still get those goosebumps. That I can assure you. But I really don't know emotionally how these shows are going to affect me. And I can't wait to come back and tell you About how I did feel, because I really don't know. I, I don't know. I'm sure it's going to be bittersweet. I don't know if I'm going to be sad, if I'm going to be euphoric. I don't know if I'm going to have a swirl of emotions, a mix of sadness and euphoria. I just don't know how to how to react to it. It's been such a major part of my life. I don't know if I'll even be in denial that it's the last time. Maybe I will be. Maybe that last show, I will just walk out and say, in my mind, I'll feel as if I will see him perform again. I know it's going to be a lifetime memory. I'm excited to go. I have great expectations for it. And Elton, for the almost 50 years I've been seeing him, has never let me down. And as I said before, from an emotional standpoint and a personal standpoint, I still do get those goosebumps. I, my heart still starts pounding. I still get a a big smile on my face when he comes out. I am still focused completely on the music and on his performing. I don't even know what's happening around me. I'm sure all those things will continue for these three shows, but then there will be this added realization and this added emotion that I don't know if I will experience at the time or will I experience when he leaves the stage or will I experience on the flight home or will I experience when I record that podcast telling you about how these concerts were or maybe it won't Hit me until two months later, sometime in January or February. I don't know. I do know that I'm excited to this for this time to be a part of the history that Elton will make at Dodger Stadium. I'm excited to see him again because I haven't seen him perform since October. I'm excited to be a part of these historic concerts, being there for all three of them and sharing them, not only with him as a special life memory, but with many of the friends that I have met throughout the years from all around the world, the United States, Australia, Europe, of people that I know that will be at this concert, and I no doubt will see and spend some time with, or at least say hi. It's been an amazing journey for me personally, and... It is coming to an end whether I want to realize it and address it and recognize it or not. So I don't know how I'm going to respond and react that day. But I'll promise that I will come back and tell you all about it and I can say for sure I know there's one thing I know for sure about these shows in LA that Elton will do on November 17th, 19th, and 20th I will have those goosebumps and so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic every Monday a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com Or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast, we are there. And don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion is much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 339. I'm Elton Jim Toronto. I ain't here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. From the end of the web to your screen.